maybe you have felt God working in your life or have seen the Holy Spirit preventing something from happening to you even before you were aware that God was with you. Uh, this is a beautiful testimony of all that God does and moves in our lives, how he moves in our lives. I'm privileged to be with you to share today. I will be reading our scripture passage this morning from John, and we will look at John chapter 7, and these will be verses 1 through 11. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again he bent down and wrote on the ground. When they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way, and from now on, do not sin again. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me, please? Father, we ask that you open our hearts to receive your word. Please speak to us in this moment that we may listen and obey. And in obeying, we might become all that you intend us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Humans need forgiveness, don't we? We need the forgiveness that we have, that we share with one another. And forgiveness is offered to us, and we receive it. And the forgiveness that we extend to another who has harmed us. But more than the forgiveness of individuals, of people, we desperately need the forgiveness of God. I think most Christians understand that this forgiveness that we have is made possible because of Jesus Christ, and his atoning sacrifice for us on the cross. You see, when Jesus was crucified for us, he paid the debt that we owed. His blood covers our sin. And so God looks at us and sees us as one who has not sinned. We are free to live in relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ has done and the forgiveness that we have received. And I think most Christians recognize that this forgiveness is attached to our eternity. We understand that because of this forgiveness, that we have the confident expectation 
of a future with our Savior. We know that we will spend eternity with God where there will be no more grief, there will be no more pain and no more suffering and no more tears. And we thank God for what his forgiveness means to our future. But what we may not understand, it may not have gone down deep into the bottom of our hearts, deep into our souls, is what the forgiveness of God means to us right now, in real time, in our day-to-day lives. You know, Jesus invites you and me into a life, a life that is filled with his peace and his joy and his purpose, where we participate with him in all that he is doing in the world. His forgiveness has opened that door to that relationship with God. And he urges us to walk through the door to the freedom that is on the other side. So here is the question for you to consider today. Will you do it? Will you walk through the door of forgiveness into the freedom that God intends? I'd like to begin our reflection by telling you just a brief story. This is one that I read in a book written by the late scholar and beloved pastor, Dr. Timothy Keller. His book is simply called Forgive, and he begins his book with this story. It's 1843. It's a German village. It's New Year's Eve, and a pastor, Pastor Johann Blumhart, I can't believe I got the name right, Johann Blumhart, is at home. He's not expecting any guest. And then someone knocks at his door. He goes and he opens the door and he is surprised to see a young man from his congregation. The young man wants to come in and see the pastor, but all he wants to do is to sit with the pastor and confess his sins before God. This young man confesses his big sins and his small sins. And he spends this time pouring out this confession before God. And when he leaves, he leaves as a different person. The burdens are lifted. You can see that there is a transformation that is already beginning to occur in his life. Well, news spreads about this man's experience. And by the end of January, 35 additional people have come to the pastor's home with the same intent. They have come to confess their sins before God, and they leave with the assurance of God's forgiveness and the transformation that is beginning to occur in their lives. It continues in February. Another 150 people feel the prompting of the Holy Spirit and move to confess their sins. They move to experience the forgiveness and the freedom that that forgiveness brings. But the real story is not just what happens in each individual's life. The real story is what happens in the life of the village. For you see, when hearts are changed, a community is changed, and things begin to stir. 
Marriages are healed. Broken relationships are put back together again. Crimes are solved, believe it or not. Stolen property is actually returned, and alcoholics find sobriety. All of this because people begin to see their sin and confess that sin before a loving and forgiving God. And they received the forgiveness of God, and they entered into a life of freedom where they were becoming all that God intends for them to be. And as it happens in their hearts and their lives, it overflows into the world around them. We see a story of forgiveness in our passage today. Before we jump into the focal passage, let me set a little context. We're in John chapter 7. Things are intensifying around Jesus. The pressure is rising. The hostility is increasing. His family rejects him. They don't believe him. They want him to quit talking about the kingdom of God. The crowds are becoming more fickle. They are more interested in the miracles that Jesus is working that benefit them, but not in the teaching that he is providing. And the rulers, the religious rulers, the scribes and the Pharisees are becoming openly hostile. Some just want him arrested, but others will not be satisfied until he is dead. It's the fall of the year, the Feast of the Tabernacles, and Jesus has come to Jerusalem, and by the spring, he will be crucified. He has a way of moving through the day that is predictable. In the morning, he goes to the temple where he teaches the crowds that continue to gather, and in the afternoon and evening, he moves to the Mount of Olives. So these religious leaders that we read about today, they know exactly where Jesus is. And they have come to find him, not with a pure heart and good intent, but they have a plot and a plan. And their goal is to shut the ministry of Jesus down in any way they can. And so they bring a woman, a poor woman, that they have caught in the act of adultery. And if you can envision this, in the temple, the most holy place, where Jesus is standing, teaching and surrounded by a crowd, and these scribes and Pharisees have this woman, she must have been terrified and humiliated, and they are dragging her, pushing her, pushing her in front of the crowd until she stands there in front of Jesus. And I imagine them backing up, those accusers and crossing their arms and stomping their feet just a little and saying, what you gonna do, Jesus? You got a decision to make. For you see, this is not just an ordinary encounter or an ordinary question because it's actually a legal proceeding. And the reason we know that is by the presence of two witnesses. Two witnesses were required in order for judgment to be passed. Now, how they were able to get two men in this woman's bedroom at the same time to watch the adulterous action, I don't know. 
but something seems amiss, to put it mildly. There was a plot, and there was a plan, and these scribes and the Pharisees, who had devoted their lives to the law, were not concerned with the woman at all, and they weren't concerned with the law at all. Their attention was solely focused on how to trip up Jesus. Because the question they asked would put him in jeopardy either way. If he answered, release her, my forgiveness covers her sin, they would have said, you are violating the law of Moses. And that was grounds to shut Jesus down, his ministry down, and perhaps even have him arrested. If he said, stone her, execute her, fulfill the judgment of the law, then the execution of this poor woman would have stood in stark contrast to the mercy and the forgiveness that he has been preaching and teaching about all this time. So these, uh, these accusers, these scholars, religious scholars, they think they have Jesus trapped, but they don't know our Savior. And Jesus simply bends over and begins to write in the dirt. Don't you wonder what he was writing? Yeah, everybody else does too. <laughs> Scholars don't know. They, they conjecture. Some people think it might have been a list of the names of the people that were making the accusation and their associated sins. That would have been interesting. Some people think that maybe Jesus was, was reflecting on the heart and how the heart is a part of the problem of sin. Biblical scholar N.T. Wright says, perhaps Jesus is just doodling in the dirt and treating this question with the contempt that it really deserves. But the accusers are not going to be silenced and Jesus' delay just frustrates them. They are intense, they are persistent, and they say it again. Jesus, what is your response? And slowly, Jesus looks up, and I think he must have looked at them and seen straight into their hearts. And he said, He who is without sin, let him throw that first stone. It must have been silent there too as they considered their own sin for the first time perhaps. They saw their own hypocrisy for the first time perhaps. And slowly, one by one, they drifted away until it was just Jesus and the woman. And Jesus looks over at her and he says, Woman, where have all your accusers gone? Now, the term woman, we hear this, and in our cultural context, it sounds harsh, doesn't it? But in Jesus' time, it was actually a title of respect. Jesus spoke to his mother that way many times. And so here, when Jesus calls her woman, he is seeing her as an individual worthy of love, forgiveness, and respect. 
And I think she must have been as shocked as those accusers were at this love that is coming from this man. And she must have trembled as she said, They're gone, Lord. They're gone, sir. They're not here anymore. And Jesus looks at her and says, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. And in that moment, the woman received her life again in more than one way. For you see, she received her physical life back, but she received her spiritual freedom. She was set free by the forgiveness of God to become the person that he intended her to be, no longer defined by her past or by her current actions. She is now free to hear God speak and to live in relationship with him as a daughter of the Most High God, a daughter of the King. This is who she is. She has entered the room of freedom, the life of freedom. She walked through that door of forgiveness. The same invitation is for you and for me. Jesus stands and invites us. Will we confess our sin and receive forgiveness for our addictions? and enter the freedom of living completely dependent upon God? Will we confess our complacency and live completely in the understanding that God is using us to accomplish his purposes in the world? Will we confess our sin of criticism and receive forgiveness of God and live in the freedom knowing that God is at work in every person and every situation, and we will see with new eyes the potential and the beauty of what God is doing? Will we confess and will we allow the Holy Spirit to begin to reveal those things that we need to confess? Will we seek God's forgiveness and will we move to a life of freedom? There are two things that would stand in our way. They seem to be polar opposites, but actually I think they are two sides of one coin. And the first is pride. For you see, pride says, my sin is not really that bad. I don't really have all that heavy stuff that I need to confess. We minimize and trivialize the things that separate us from God. James Emery White has written a book about the crises of the church in America, and he says something that resonated with me. He says that we've become a bunch of mistakers. Mistakers. We are unwilling to call ourselves sinners. We minimize the sin in our lives, and we attribute it we diminish it just to mistakes. And the problem with that is twofold. Number one, when we fail to confess our sin, when we fail to call it what it is, we are limiting the ability for us to receive the forgiveness of God because we don't think we really need forgiving after all. 
And if we really don't think we need forgiving, essentially what we are saying is that Jesus did not need to go to the cross, at least not for us. We minimize the cross and we minimize our sins. And we doom ourselves to commit those same sins over and over and over again, held by those chains, missing the freedom that God intends for us to enjoy. Now the flip side of this coin is the problem of shame. The problem of shame is, is that we, are, we identify so much with our sin and we allow the burden of shame to cover us and we fail to recognize that Jesus has forgiven us and we have been set free. We identify with what we have done that was so wrong in the past and we fail to live in the freedom. And in doing so, we are actually doing the same thing that pride did in terms of the way we treat the cross. Because when we hold on to our shame, we are saying that the blood of Jesus was not enough. That his death on the cross was not enough to cover my sin. So God invites us, invites you, invites me to get past the pride, to get past the shame, and to come to him, to the life, to the freedom that he wants us to enjoy. This is not a self-improvement project. This is not about figuring out some place in your life where you're struggling and trying to do it better, trying harder. No, this is about surrender to the power of the Holy Spirit. To allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you these places in your lives where they're broken and hurting, the places where you're angry and you carry a load and you, and you wonder why people have done this to you, to allow the Holy Spirit to show you your part in the problem. To bring your sin to a loving God who longs to receive you, who longs to forgive you and to confess. And with that confession comes surrender where you say, Oh Lord, here I am. Please take this from me and allow your spirit to do his transforming work within me. You know, it's what that village did. It's what those people did. And the result would be the same for you and me. For this result is not just individual. It's not just that you will be changed and I will be changed. But when we recognize all that Jesus has done for us, and when we allow the Spirit to speak to us personally about our lives and we come to him and we confess and we ask for his forgiveness and we receive his freedom, we are transformed people and as a transformed community of faith, our whole city would be changed. This is actually the definition of revival. A revival in that village we could have the same thing occur right here, in this time, in this place. Jesus has done all that is necessary to bring us to the life in this present and in the future. But his invitation stands today. Will you come to him? Will you surrender anything that is blocking you, any of your sin? Give it to Jesus. He stands ready to forgive. 
he stands ready to bring you into a life of freedom, a life of joy and peace and purpose. It is what he came to do. So I ask you, how is God speaking to you this morning? What is he prompting? What is he bringing up in your heart? And I would urge you to spend a few moments in prayer. Give him all of you. Don't hold anything back. The door of forgiveness is open and freedom is just on the other side. Will you pray with me, please? Oh, Father, we are so grateful that we serve a God of love and grace, of forgiveness. And God, we long to live the life that you created us to live. But sometimes we get caught up in our own problems, our own pain, the circumstances that swirl around us. And we fail to see how we have moved away from you. We fail to recognize the sin in our lives. So we come today, Lord, grateful that we serve a God who forgives, joyful because we know that that forgiveness lives to, leads to freedom. And like the woman who was accused but set free, we ask you, God, for your forgiveness and for your life. We pray this in the name of Jesus who makes all of this possible. Amen.